Welcome to Luxury On Air, where we explore the trends, innovations, and personalities defining and redefining the luxury industry. Hello, my name is Felicitas Moorhag. I'm professor at HSE Lausanne and founder of the Swiss Center for Luxury Research. We unite luxury researchers and experts from currently 11 top academic institutions in Switzerland to build a hub for thought leadership on the future of luxury management. Together with Deloitte Switzerland, we launched the Luxury On Air podcast series, where we talk to luxury experts from the industry and academia. Today, I have the honor and pleasure to welcome Jana Eckert from King's Business School and Flora Barley from Cass Business School, both in London. They are the founders of the notion of liquid luxury, which is our topic of today. Flora and Jana, welcome to our podcast show. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for inviting us. It's nice to be here. Yes. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being here. Well, before we discuss everything around liquid luxury, um, what is for you luxury in your private life? Jana? For me, time is the ultimate luxury. And in particular, time when I can be disconnected from the world. So hiking and swimming in nature, for example, or playing my vinyl records on my turntable at home. Those are my ultimate luxuries. Oh, very private. <laughs> Thank you. Flora? Well, surprisingly very similar, actually, even that we didn't coordinate the answers. So for me as well, it's time away from this very busy, very demanding uh, world of work. So time away in nature, hiking with my family. It's uh, my luxury these days. Well, thank you even more for being here and now for our listeners. Um, can you explain us a little bit what you are focusing on in your teaching and research, Flora? So I'm a professor at Cass Business School, as you pointed out, been there now for eight years. I teach consumer behavior. So I research consumer behavior and teach the same subject as well as do PhD supervisions on the topic. I have currently two research projects that seem to be related to the topic that I thought to highlight. So one has to do with how the nature of work is changing when employees are also clients, in a way, customers of the workplace. This is particularly the phenomena of co-working with companies like WeWork, for example. Um, so we are trying to investigate how work is changing where actually it's being consumed as not is, is also an object of consumption, it's being consumed. And the second object relates a bit with the topic of today is this return to analog technologies as uh, a way to counter dematerialization of consumption. So we live in a digital world and how we're coping with that. And one of the ways, especially among young consumers, has been a return to these old, outdated analog technologies. So that's the two. It's mm, very timely topics and very much related to today's talk. Thank you, Tana. So my research and teaching focuses on branding. So I typically teach brand management um, to masters and MBA students. And my research tends to look at creating effective storytelling uh, for brands. And I'm also interested similarly to Flora in the revival of analog technologies, for example, um, and also what kind of new luxury brands look like, also related to our topics for today. But I have um, a couple cases I've written for Harvard in the past year, for example, on the revival of the Kodak brand, who makes you know film for, uh, for cameras, and also the new luxury Shinola brand. So those are some examples of, uh, of things that I've been, uh, that I'm interested in and have been working on recently. 
That's very interesting because you're very much forward looking into your conception of luxury, but at the same time, very much interested in nostalgic um, manifestations of luxury. That's actually very, very interesting. So I can't wait to, to go. So are you ready to go, ladies? Yes, let's do it. Perfect. So a couple of years ago, I discovered the bestseller book by Tim Ferriss, which is called The Four-Hour Work Week. And in this book, he writes uh, a sentence which I found very interesting. It says, gold is getting old. The new rich are those who abandon the deferred life plan and create luxury lifestyles in the present using the currency of the new rich, which is time and mobility. This is an art and a science he refers to as lifestyle design. So uh, when I read this um, abstract, I, um, I I thought it seems that Tim Ferriss proclaims that it's time for a redefinition of luxury, status, and wealth in life. Um, and you actually have offered such a redefinition through your concept of liquid luxury. So can you explain this concept to our listeners, Dana? Sure, we would definitely agree with Tim Ferriss here. And this is um, our thinking has been exactly revolving around how can we understand this new luxury that focuses on time, mobility, and we would argue access as well. So our concept of liquid luxury um, has three key components to it. So liquid luxury values consumption that is light. And by light, we mean portable. So things like um, different um, you know, iPads and different um, devices like this where that allow you to kind of take your life anywhere, to do your work anywhere. Um, that type of portability and lightness is what we mean. Um, liquid luxury also values immateriality. So this means privileging experiences over objects. And finally, li liquid luxury values access over ownership. So in other words, accessing various luxury objects, not necessarily owning them. So this is through platforms like Bag Borrower Steel um, for, uh, for bags, Rent the Runway for clothes, Zipcar for cars, things like this. So in liquid luxury, we see a focus on speed and novelty rather than exclusivity. So in other words, trying to have either objects or experiences, you know, getting the latest thing first and being able to display novelty. Um, so having something that is new that one's social media followers, for example, will not have seen somewhere else. So liquid luxury, yes, tends to privilege this speed and novelty over necessarily exclusivity. So the key aspects here with liquid luxury are access rather than ownership, exclusivity, um, which tends to be via experiences rather than objects, the value lying in novelty, um, time becoming a luxury, and inconspicuousness being valued over conspicuousness. So what we mean by that is consumption, which signals knowledge, culture, creativity, self-improvement, rather than being very conspicuously luxury, meaning that brands are immediately recognizable. Um, so we can contrast how I just briefly summarized liquid luxury to traditional luxury, which we call solid luxury. So this is what the luxury industry, you know, has conceptualized luxury as for the past 50 years or so. So traditionally focused on ownership. So people owning objects rather than accessing them, um, the timelessness of designs, the exclusivity of possessions. 
this is um, how, yes, what we see as the more traditional solid luxury. Um, and the purpose of that has tended to be dem to demonstrate wealth and status. Um, in liquid luxury, it's not necessarily that demonstrating status uh, isn't valued anymore or isn't happening anymore, but the way that it is signaled isn't necessarily focused on this exclusivity, this timelessness anymore, but rather signaling knowledge, culture, uh, and values through consumption and typically experiences. Thank you very much, Jana. Um, it's it's really fascinating to see how much the notion of luxury then changes. When I look back when I was young, uh, it was still the big is beautiful, but that seems to be totally over. And uh, it's, it seems to be more about not being bound to any um, uh, material stuff, having a lot of freedom. Um, I also remember um, the sentence once uh, in a movie, which was all the stuff that you own at one point, it owns you. So it, it sounds like liberating yourself from this, uh, yeah, from these possessions to, to be lighter in your own life. Is that correct? Exactly. Thank you. Um, I would just wonder, where does that come from, Flora? What are the societal and market drivers of liquid luxury? So we anchor our work that we've done in this area in two levels. One, we look at macro uh, shifts. And of course, this conversation is very much connected to the end of uh, industrial modernity, known as post-industrial or liquid modernity. So here it represents a historical shift to a services and knowledge-based economy, which in a way also transforms what consumers value and what is valued in society, what, what is successful in society. Um, so in liquid modernity, it is all about being flexible, as you also kind of hinted. It's all about being free, being flexible, being adaptable, being, in, uh, being able to embrace change, which, as you can imagine, in these times is very important. Uh, and we have argued that increasingly also consumption that we call liquid should be able, should enable consumers to, uh, should facilitate such flexibility and enables them to, to drop one identity project and shift to another one. So this idea of social structures being malleable, being changing, we live in a world of change and transformation. And then us as individual consumers, we're looking at basically in a way how these consumers are coping, how they are managing this, these major shifts. Uh, at the market level, so these are more what's happening then in sort of more market economy level. Here we have built past on our empirical work, which we have studied context in, with highly nomadic mobile professionals. So these are highly professional um, professionals that relocate constantly around the world globally. Uh, also our work on the sharing economy, which we frame as being about access and also some work that more recently we've done with uh, the nature of digital materiality. So in all these spaces, we argue there is, we observe this idea of liquidity. So for example, just to highlight two of them. So in the context of social media, for example, we have noted that it is much more important. It's all about attention capital, as Gianna pointed out. So it's all about gaining followers. It's all about having your content being, uh, being shared and so on. So in other words, you not really you don't need to own luxury items to perform an affluent lifestyle, for example, on Instagram. So in a way, social media has started to decouple that relationship between ownership and, uh, and luxury in a way. Uh, similarly, the sharing economy has proliferated, uh, has emphasized even more this decoupling and sort of democrat democratized luxury. Uh, 
so consumers now can access luxury vacation homes on Airbnb Premium or gain access to the latest couture garments via Rent the, hun- or rent the, hu- or the Runway and so on, uh, or can gain a very personalized chauffeur uh, experience via Uber. So these are all basically services and experiences that maybe we will not be able to have without the sharing economy. So it's, it's a lifestyle facilitator, if you like. But both social media and the sharing economy, we argue, has sort of proliferated the shift towards this liquid luxury and decoupled this relationship between ownership and luxury. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting. Um, and I still wonder um, who are the people who are into this new form of luxury? Because when I go back to um, yeah to Germany and uh, I look at uh, yeah the peers of my generation, there are sometimes I still have the impression it's the, the same code it was in the 90s. Like you had your Chanel flag bag, you had your Rolex Oyster watch and you had a husband who drove a Porsche Cayenne. Um, but at the same time, you were referred to a specific kind of people who seem to be very prone to this lifestyle. You were referring to nomads or people who are always on the go. Can you can you locate those consumers who embrace this liquid luxury lifestyle? Sure. So first of all, I think we think that there's an age component to this. So you tend to see this being quite strong in younger consumers. And by younger consumers, we're referring to millennials and Gen Z. So these are, and this is typically people around aged, you know, 35 and under. Um, And oftentimes the reasons why they've embraced this type of liquid luxury as compared to traditional luxury um, is because based on their lifestyle, they have to. And so what I mean by that is um, they tend to be urban consumers. And so when you're living in cities, you have less space. You don't really have the space to collect, you know, all of your different sneakers or all of your different handbags or, you know, all of the different things that you own. It's much more convenient to to access things. Um, We also see um, liquid luxury being embraced by Silicon Valley tech types. Um, So people who really place a high value on not necessarily, they may have a lot of money, but not necessarily demonstrating it or flaunting it, but rather using that money for things like Um, self-improvement and gaining knowledge. Um, And so they're very much into experiences and travel, which will develop them as a person and develop their own experiential CV um, as compared to, you know, the Porsche Cayenne and the the Mm -hmm. Chanel handbags and things like this. Um, You mentioned earlier, Felicitas, people who are mobile. That is also definitely a group um, who embraces this um, so the the, digit, the nomads that Flora uh, mentioned that we studied tended to be people who worked for organizations like, say, the World Health Organization or the UN. But we can also see another um, another type of nomad uh, which which does embrace many of these younger people, which are digital nomads. So these are people who are doing a variety of different group uh, different jobs, any type of job really that can be done via a laptop. And they they are serially mobile around the world, doing their work from various beaches or wherever, <laughs> wherever they can. And they are also a group that embraces this liquid luxury. 
And the final point that I would make um, is that from a cultural and geographic perspective, we do see this trend happening in places and cultures where you may not expect it. So China is, is the example that I like to highlight here. China has traditionally been associated with solid luxury. It's oftentimes the number one market for you know, handbags and watches and all of the type of traditional ownership-based objects. Um, but in China, you can also see this shift as well, especially from conspicuousness to inconspicuousness. And a brand that I really like to highlight that I think exemplifies um, a lot of the values that liquid luxury has is Shangja, which is a Chinese brand that has been developed in partnership with Hermes. And it is extraordinarily high end, but when you see a Shangja product, there's no indication that that is the brand. So you have to really be kind of in the know to recognize it. Um, and it's based on the idea behind the brand is to uh, maintain traditional Chinese craftsmanship um, uh, um, forms of, of making in terms of being a maker culture that were in danger of, of um, of of not being relevant anymore uh, and and perhaps disappearing, um, and so it's a brand that um, that that falls into this category of um, people do tend to buy it to own it as compared to just accessing it, but it represents a lot of the values in terms of knowledge, uh, creativity, etc. Um, that a lot of liquid lifestyle brands highlight. Mm -hmm. So what you mentioned about the immateriality, it's, it's a lot of immaterial value in there that is gaining uh, an importance here, it seems. Oh, it's, it's exactly. so different than from where we come from, right? Um, I would like to come back to one thing that you said before, um, which was about it is it is still about signaling status, right? If, if we look at social media, of course, people want to have attention as you mentioned the, the currency is attention capital that you amass on social media so it, it doesn't seem that liquid luxury does not serve the function of, uh, of of signaling anymore but maybe it's a little bit of different uh status signals i'm just thinking back because in earlier times it was it was not really cool to not own something right somebody who rented or who leased a, a porsche that was kind of okay that's the poor guy who pretends to be rich but now excess-based consumption is now considered as as a status symbol among those people that you just described the millennials the u.s urban tech and entrepreneur subcultures so what is this status symbol that this liquid luxury signals? Yeah, it's a very interesting observation. So we would argue that we observe one of the key uh, social signaling that happens is to signal the fact that you are flexible, right? You are one of these young and mobile and sort of almost nomadic kind of consumer that can pick up and go at any moment, can pick up any project, can work on multiple projects. We see this, for example, in several contexts like the co-working spaces that I mentioned at the beginning, consumers that have embraced a much more flexible uh, work so they work on zero well on contract basis sometimes they have work sometimes they don't and they're completely comfortable with this idea of professional precarity so just signaling the fact that you are flexible that you're not committed to this uh to certain identity projects to certain brands you're not owned by this but you basically are in charge in making your decisions this is a this is a form of status within these communities for us 
the second one is also just basically uh, signaling that you are a savvy, smart consumer. This is a very American notion in a way, because uh, the beginning when the sharing economy was introduced was engaging in these conversations that uh, accessing, so sharing is cheaper than owning. And this is very clear kind of in the marketing materials of these companies and consumers embrace that. So in a way, when we did our research uh, in sort of North American U.S. context with young professionals and students, they saw themselves as being smart consumers to embrace sharing services rather than car, car ownership because they were in a way uh, being savvy. Uh, and a final sort of signal that we can observe here is just being smart in a way that you express your stewardship towards Earth, towards sustainability. So it doesn't mean we didn't find in our studies that necessarily consumers were embracing car sharing, for example, because it was for sustainability motivations, but rather it's cool to be to perform a sustainability kind of identity, right? So by embracing the services, then we can also perform, uh, we can also be part of this sustainability movement. So this will be some key uh, social status signaling that we would highlight or we found in our research. Mm -hmm. So gold, it doesn't only seem to get old, but even green. Um, Flora, if I stay a little bit on this uh, notion, because I'm, I'm thinking about this with some grain of salt in there because couldn't this also be just a euphemistic version of a pretty egocentric lifestyle so if, if i play the devil's advocate here isn't it more about saying i make the world serve my luxury life than i serve the world through smarter consumption i'm just thinking about the carbon footprint that these liquid luxury proponents leave when they jet around the planet every week maybe not during covid but before and after Yes, I, I agree with you, Felicitas, that there is no doubt that, you know, I, I mentioned the concept earlier of an experiential CV, like the more kind of exotic places that you can have been, the more attention capital you can accrue via your luxury experiences. And of course, you have to display all of that. And you have to go to these <laughs> exotic locations to be able to display it. So there's no doubt that there is a high carbon footprint associated with this type of mobility. Um, and also, as Flora just mentioned, even when consumers are engaging in access-based consumption that many people would argue is more sustainable. So, for example, accessing cars, you know, that lots of other people access when they need them rather than everyone owning an individual car. It's not necessarily, it's typically to be able to access multiple brands and having, you know, um, being able to display different brands at different times, depending on what your needs are, rather than necessarily sustainability um, being the driver for 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 doing that, although the savviness, um, as Flora mentioned, is that comes from being a part of a system like this is something that contributes to uh, to status. Um, so in many ways, I see this as a um, or our research has shown that this is a, a, a two sided issue, I guess. Yes, you have the higher carbon footprints of people jetting around the world. But at the same time, when people are using rent the runway, um, or using Zipcar rather than engaging in ownership, that does have um, a positive net sustainability or carbon footprint um, outcome, even if that's not necessarily the driving reason behind it. And we also see um, with this focus on 
um, you know, displaying knowledge and values, for example, rather than necessarily just exclusivity, you start to see things like using tote bags rather than plastic bags, you know, emerging as, uh, as a form of status because it signals that you have the cultural capital to realize that this is something, you know, that is good to do for the planet. So this is a part of liquid luxury as well that does have this positive um, element. So we do see it as, uh, as two sided in that respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So not totally black or white. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting because I can imagine that for the traditional luxury brands, there is a lot to learn at the moment, or at least to a lot to, to decide at the moment, because um, you also mentioned the speed that comes with this new lifestyle. Um, and I, I think there is a lot of challenges of liquid luxury for the traditional industry in there. So, for example, what does this speed that permeates liquid luxury do to the traditional idea of craftsmanship that luxury houses pride themselves off so much? Clara. Yeah, I completely agree. Felicity does with observation. Like for us, uh, liquidity is about fast circulation of resources. So it's logic, it's temporality, if you like, it's speed, which also corresponds to the sort of temporality of modern, of late modernity. And uh, we always saw, that's why we were interested in the study of luxury and what has happened to luxury in liquid consumption, because we see uh, liquid consumption as a challenge to traditional luxury brands, as you pointed out. So they're known for, for being about heritage and craft and sort of this long lasting kind of craft processes, right? And idea creation and designs. So they, the, the two exist in opposition. Um, however, we also saw early on, I think a couple of years ago, that fashion houses, for example, fearing the competition and the challenge from fast fashion, which can be seen as another manifestation of liquid consumption, they move very quickly towards more frequent, more speedier collections, or making them immediately available online. Uh, however, we saw, I mean, this is from the popular press, we've seen a lot of, back, uh, that this has backfired, right, with a lot of hot couture houses like Dior and Armani, have started to bemoth the fast fashion uh, trend in luxury fashion. Uh, we have seen several creative directors uh, resign from fashion houses. And more recently, Giorgio Armani was quoted in stating that uh, luxury should stop imitating fast fashion. And in a way, we agree. We have observed in, an observed in another uh, paper that we wrote that actually there is, for example, a return of uh, a lot of craftsmanship in a variety of consumption um, activities or domains. So where value is for a lot of consumers these days is not in the authenticity or necessarily in the authenticity of the act of consumption, but in the authenticity you gain from the way that the product, the object was produced. Uh, so in a way, we've seen a lot of craft-like practices uh, that have uh, re-emerged and they have been embraced by highly educated young workers. So, for example, the famous cases of the craft cocktail bars and the craft butcheries and the craft sort of shoe artisans that have opened all around London and craft artisan beer and jewelries and so on. And traditionally, this will be seen as more working class kind of domains. And now you have highly educated millennials that basically have embraced those post-third university education. So, and again, And this is countering kind of this liquidification of variety of consumption domains we've seen uh, where, so it's a response to that. 
And we see consumers actually valuing this, uh, these practices because of the speed, because of the slow and the enduring the kind of sustainability value they have. It's fascinating to see all these counter movements moving from solid yes. to luxury back to solid. That's that's a really, really interesting. Maybe it's also because people to start to consume more consciously and maybe make their decisions. Where does it make sense to be more on the liquid side? Where does it still make sense to go back to the solid side as you do with your vinyl uh, listening, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, staying on the challenges for traditional luxury brands uh, and staying a little bit on the notion of the speed. Uh, do you see any challenge for the relationships and the loyalty that liquid luxury consumers develop with luxury brands? This is a great question. There are really strong challenges for brand loyalty. And what this stems from is the connection to identity. So what I mean by this is in the past with traditional luxury, someone would be a Prada person or a Gucci person. If you were deciding, you know, which handbag am I going to get this season? And maybe you were only going to get one. You really wanted to have a sense of which brand was most in line with your identity. And that's what you would invest in. And that's what you would use to display a part of who you were as a person um, to others. Uh, And And this has long been a a cornerstone of how we understand consumer behavior within the luxury space, this tight connection to identity. But what has happened in particular with the advent of the sharing economy and people being able to access is that if you subscribe to Bag, Borrow or Steal, where you can get a Prada handbag one week, a Gucci handbag the next week, a Louis Vuitton handbag the next week, and all of them, the, the newest versions, so you can display this novelty that we were talking about before that's so valued in in liquid luxury, um, that it's, you know, and you can do this across brands. You are not necessarily a Prada person or a Gucci person anymore. Um, You're a person who um, is using all of these different brands to display your kind of knowledge of of the category and the novelty, the fact that you have everything kind of first. Um, And so your identity is not as tightly tied to to each of these brands. And this presents a huge challenge for brand loyalty. Um, So some of the ways that we've seen traditional luxury brands, I mean, they they realize this, of course. Um, Some of the things that they've been doing is branching out into experiences. So, you know, starting a cafe within their store or starting a hotel Um, so that consumers uh, can have experiences related to the brands and not just objects that they can access, you know, kind of now and again, whenever there's something new out in the hopes that maybe people's loyalty will start to become reconnected again back to the brand if if it's more uh, focused on experiences. So that's one thing that traditional luxury brands um, have been doing. Other things that we can see is traditional luxury brands starting their own car sharing platforms, for example. Mercedes did this. So rather than, you know, a consumer who's a member of Zipcar and can access any brand whenever they want, if they can access different types of Mercedes, then maybe that's a way to keep loyalty within the brand, even though you can still hopefully provide that type of novelty that consumers are looking for. So those are some of the things we've seen so far in terms of reactions to this. 
But ultimately, our work suggests that loyalty and tight identity ties to these brands are really going to become less and less and that um, loyalty is going to be more to these different platforms rather than to particular brands. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because if we think of the consumers that are the, the nowadays nomads around the world, why would they create loyalty to brands if they can't create loyalty to just one place, for example, or to uh, a couple of people which are uh, in that place? So uh, I think that makes sense that loyalty in itself is probably something which is not uh, the top on the top three um, values in the order of things that are important for, for these people. So um, interesting to see what luxury brands from the traditional era do with that and uh, we see it always spurs some innovation some creativity and some responses um i was really fascinated by um your how you outlined that every novelty in the market like the liquid luxury engenders some response because um you have seen uh, with the fast fashion model for example that some maison go back to slow fashion as a response to the liquid luxury And I'm just um, thinking of uh, the writer Sima that you also cite in your seminal article on luxury, uh, liquid luxury, who says that luxury for the upper classes is never the same as for lower. And this luxury is abandoned by the upper class as soon as the lower class starts to consume it. So in your opinion, how will the elite who wants to set themselves apart from any democratized form of luxury, how would they respond to liquid luxury in its current form? Great question. I love this question. Um, so first, I think that there are, what Simmel is getting here is this notion of imitation. So as soon as the, the lower classes can start to imitate what the upper classes are doing, then it ceases to be um, an element of status for the upper classes. So what is it that consumers can't imitate? You could argue with the ubiquity of counterfeits um, for a lot of material objects, for example, that they can imitate that. Um, but one thing that it's very difficult for the lower classes to imitate is time. And so this is something that both Flora and I mentioned at the beginning when you were asking us about our own notions of luxury, um, that it's so difficult to be able to get time for, uh, for what I've called in some other work, decelerating, uh, for slowing down and for reflecting um, and, and, and to really to be disconnected. And this, I think, is how the elite is responding um, by engaging in consumption that is slowed down and which facilitates being able to appreciate um, leisure time to a larger extent. So in other words, not spending leisure time, just uh, scrolling through all of your different um, devices and all of your different social media platforms, but, but really disconnecting and having the time to unwind. Um, so having this time to slow down really is becoming a luxury. So what I mean by this is um, going on uh, a walking pilgrimage, for example, going on a silent yoga retreat, being able to disconnect for say two weeks, um, engaging in slow consumption, like shopping at a, local's farmers, a local farmer's market rather than the convenient supermarket that's open all night. So you can do it uh, you know, whenever you need to, but rather taking the time to go within the three hours that the local farmer's market is open so that you can support um, local artisans, for example. 
Um, engaging in analog consumption, which we've mentioned already, um, this tends to be less convenient. It takes longer um, to, to listen to music on vinyl, for example, to take photos with film and then develop them, which is having a huge comeback, by the way, as compared to just taking digital photos on your phone. Um, this is what I mean about um, engaging in consumption that, that privileges this notion of time. Um, I would I would argue that this is something that most consumers want, but it's really only the elites who are able to actually carve out the time to be able to to access it. So our work definitely suggests that this is that this is going to become a new a new form of luxury and a really important one. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, very interesting because when you really look for the very influential people in this world, you hardly find them online, right? They are the ones who withdraw from this digital frenzy at all. And you probably find them in some um, garden somewhere in south of France or on some islands where nobody knows where they live just to, to stay away from all this uh, craziness in the world. Um, it, it looks like this would be a, a conscious step to set yourself apart from the democratized form of you know, everyone has to be online, everyone now has access to, um, to smart sharing luxury. Um, but now we're looking also at the inevitable actuality, um, Corona. Sorry, we can't uh, go around this question. Uh, I also wonder, did Corona maybe bring an interesting twist to the notion of liquid luxury as most of us were deprived of lots of liquid forms of luxury, such as travel, social gatherings, leisure activities, um, people started to cocoon in their homes again, maybe not a signal of, um, a, as a reaction to liquid luxury, but just because they had to. So do you see an orientation back to good old solid luxury in some regards? I mean, this is an interesting question. I think we're all living this now for the for more than one year, right? <laughs> and uh, there, we we see kind of two two trends here as well. So on one side, from everything we've read and experienced, there's clear return to this idea of old luxuries at home. So we see a lot of people engaging in crafts kind of duties, right? Like there's a sourdough movement for a while and bread baking and Uh, crafting, and so on. Uh, also, we've mentioned the return to analogs, uh, vinyl record listening, board games. Um, also, it, for me, it's been super interesting to see conversations, especially in social media, about people talking about just the, the act of shopping uh, online for luxury brands, traditional luxury brands. And they found this to be an indicator, a reminder of normality, of what to the good old normal uh, normality in a way. Um, that we so much lack these days. So yes, I completely agree that on one side, there is this return to traditional luxury and we all need it in a way as just an anchor to this is how normal is. And hopefully it's a reminder of how it was, but also it gives us hope to where we can be. So there is a different kind of, rather than luxury brands signaling in a way social status is just now signaling some form of normality and some form of sort of giving us hope in a way. So for me, there's been kind of interesting. Uh, on the other side, of course, because we ourselves have been part of this global nomadism and uh, have had tried to observe what has happened, right, to these highly mobile professionals or digital nomads during this time. And of course, they have not, they've stopped 
uh, traveling, not as much as before, but many who could afford. So we see all these stories in the press about the rich who have escaped kind of uh, urban global cities uh, to, to cope with COVID. And they are working remote from remote cabins, for example. So the most demanded and highly valued uh, experiences in Airbnb during this time has been remote cabins and areas far away uh, from cities. Uh, a lot of people have moved to New Zealand, Wyoming. The state of Wyoming in the U.S. has a problem because they can't now provide public services for the amount of New Yorkers that have moved there during this year. So we've seen this shift of people that could afford basically have left these major pandemic kind of urban areas and are working remote. So mobility in a way provided that. But also, Gianna mentioned the digital nomads before, and there's been this increase during the pandemic times that some young, more techie-oriented professionals are relocating to these holiday destinations. Uh, places like Greece and Portugal, Estonia, they've provided almost like free visa, just come and work and we provide the infrastructure and facilitate for these young professionals to work from there. So there's still been some uh, embracement, embracement of mobility in a way, but at the same time, I, I think there's been a strong role of in our everyday kind of life of luxury brands serving more as discomfort anchors rather than social status signal. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, we, we experiences are huge. We keep mentioning experiences, and we have also been deprived of experiences. And uh, in all the surveys we've seen during COVID times, the number one thing people want to consume post-COVID are experiences. So I think we're going to see a return to, to travel, and uh, we're going to see a return to live shows and concerts, uh, and so on. So, yeah. I love the notion of comfort anchor for the traditional luxury brands. So it seems that there is still place for uh, many, many different uh, brands out there, but you just have to observe very, very closely what is happening in the world, not only from a societal point of view in general, but also before, during and after COVID. Um, against this background, To, to bring all this uh, together, what can managers take away from the notion of liquid luxury? What would be your three recommendations for them? Okay, so, um, I mean, I think our work is meant to bring out these ideas, right? To kind of point out the fact that luxury is ever-changing, as you also pointed out. And as a marketing manager, you always have to be on, uh, uh, you always have to observe and see how things are shifting, especially when you have historical transformations like, like the, at the end of industrial modernity. But for us, three very key recommendations, and we might have touched on briefly on them during this conversation. Uh, number one, we see still a very important role of traditional luxury brands if they're positioned as a way to help consumers resist or cope or manage liquidity. So Gianna mentioned, for example, this idea of the time, right? Having, using luxury brands and experiences as a way to slow down, decelerate, such as the studies that she's done on these walking spiritual pilgrimages, for example. So we can kind of imagine how luxury brands can provide this either oasis of deceleration or just simply oasis of, of uh, a way to anchor yourself, right? And slow down and, and so on, as we mentioned during COVID times. Um, we also have pointed out there is a return to these artisan forms of craftsmanship 
so we still could see a role there for traditional luxury brands as highlighting or signaling more the inconspicuousness as well as the deceleration. So these are two important values that consumers are still looking for from traditional luxury. However, looking more at sort of the, the more liquid forms of luxury, like for example, with access-based services, we have proposed and have argued that they could uh, be marketed or framed more around freedom of lifestyle and the creativity and the renewal that come with them. So the idea that all framing ownership as a way, as a burden, as a commitment, and as a huge investment that many people could not afford or cannot be because things are ever-changing. As a result, then you have the sharing economy and access-based services that enable you to be free and choose uh, to who you want to be depending on what the situation is. So this freedom of lifestyle and, and the renewal of the self could be themes that come with this uh, liquid luxury. And I think finally, just to conclude with mentioning experiences strongly throughout, I think we see a big role of experiences because of their immateriality. That's the connection to liquidity. And uh, we could see even traditional brands can try to think, and many have, uh, thought about how to incorporate uh, experiences into their luxury brand. Like we know many traditional luxury brands like the Bulgari uh, traditional jewelry brand also have now Bulgari hotels where consumers can go in a very high-end experience to engage and experience the brand itself. So this will be some recommendations that we would have. Thank you very much. Uh, that all makes it uh, very much concrete for our managers to cope with uh, liquid luxury in the future. Uh, we are slowly coming to an end. I have one fun and one quiz question for you. Uh, let's start with the fun question. Let's take liquid luxury literally now. Jana, what is your favorite drink? <laughs> I love this question. Um, it's hard for me to choose a favorite drink. My, my first reaction was to say bourbon, which is probably one of my favorite drinks. But the one that I'm going to answer your question with is uh, natural wines. This is something that I've gotten into recently, wines made with traditional methods. Uh, so they typically are quite cloudy um, and yeah, it tastes quite earthy, I guess, compared to regular wine. But uh, I've really been having fun exploring them, especially the orange wines and some which are yeah different colors than what we normally expect. Um, but not only are they delicious, but I think that natural wines tie into some of the trends that we've been talking about in terms of what new luxury looks like. Um, because it is based on these very kind of ancient forms of, uh, of craftsmanship that are, that are having a revival. You are totally the avant-garde. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. <laughs> Flora, what is your favorite drink? <laughs> well, during the past year, I've spent a lot of time in the south of Portugal. And so I would say red wines, Portuguese red wines, especially from the region of Algarve, have become my favorite these days, yeah. Okay, so really two connoisseurs. Now comes the final quiz question for you. Um, I quoted one sentence from a movie, which is um, all the stuff that you own, at one point it owns you. Who knows from which movie that comes? Ah, we, I remember in one of our papers, Flora, we used a quote from Up in the Air. Yes, that George Clooney movie. Quote. It's a different quote. So maybe it's yeah. the same movie, just different quotes. Yeah, maybe. Um, Up in the air? 
I refer to Fight Club. Oh, okay. oh, Fight Club. Good one. <laughs> All right. Hey, we're coming to an end. It's been an exciting, exciting, exciting interview. And it's uh, really um, mind-blowing what you have on your uh, um, in your heads and also in your papers. And I can only thank you uh, on behalf of our listeners and, of course, on behalf of all the academic community to produce so exciting thoughts and put them down in your writing. So we are all excited to read and hear about you, Jana and Flora. And uh, our listeners will find more info information around you and your research in our show notes of this podcast episode. So all the best for your research. And we are all very much looking forward to hear more from you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, Felicitas. Bye. Thank you for listening to Luxury on Air with Corinne Segetti and Felicitas Morhart. This podcast is provided to you by Deloitte Switzerland and the Swiss Center for Luxury Research. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a five-star review. If you're keen to stay up to date on what's trending in the luxury industry, don't forget to subscribe. As always, you can find more information about the current episode in the show notes. We wish you all the best. Until next time.